0: Welcome to the Austin Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Perry. Eric Skopel is with me as always. And before we dive into this Monday podcast, we do have some duck football news to cover. We have some discussion of top athletes to cover. Maybe we'll go into some comments that were made about the women's basketball program. Lots to get to on this Monday show. But before we dive in, I want to remind you guys out there right now, you could sign up for your first month being $1.00. And after that, it goes to $9.95. Or if you want to jump in with an annual subscription today, stay up to be on all the Oregon Duck Athletic news out there. And yes, sports are not going on right now, but the sports world continues to move on. And we have news every day that comes out. You can get an annual membership right now for 50% off, $53.70. That comes out to basically $4.48 a, uh, a month over that first year. Really good deal there. Inside scoop on the work in ducks, expert analysis. And not only do you get to read all of our content on duckterritory.com, you get to read all the content across the 24-7 sports network. That's the beauty of our membership is that you get everything. You get to act, you get also exclusive recruiting coverage. And then once you're paying your regular price, whether that's an annual membership after your first year or if you do the month-to-month and you, you get into your second month, you get CBS All Access for free. That's a streaming product. That CBS has over 10,000 shows, movies, live sports. I guess live sports are put on hold right now. But everything else for free with your membership for DuckTerritory.com. So jump in on that now. All right, Eric, um, over the weekend we got some news that The football program was officially canceling April 18th spring game. I don't think really anyone out there had a ton of high hopes that this was going to still be played, but it was still an option, and finally they they canceled it. Now, I do want to remind folks out there that it is canceled, but the food drive, the food for Lane County that Oregon does, that's associated with the... Um, the spring game every single year is still on and that they're directing people uh, to go online. You can go to goducks.com. They've got a link on it there. Uh, and donate to Food for Lane County because they are still going to be doing uh, their food drive. Now, from a football perspective, I, I think there's a lot of different ramifications that this comes with. Let's start with on the field first of where are the biggest impacts of no spring game, no spring practice that this is going to have?
1: Uh, I mean, there's a lot. And and I, first I do want to say if there's any year to donate to the food drive, this feels like the year. And I know um, it's scary times right now, but if if there's a time to, to kind of show some compassion and some solidarity with, with everybody, I think it's right now. So I think good point by Matt to bring that up. Don't, don't kind of get lost on April 18th. They're still doing that. So um, take part in that if you can, you feel comfortable. I think it'll help a lot of people in a time that is obviously uh, a lot of need. But, you know, back to the discussion at hand in terms of the football. Yeah, I mean, this is like we, as you said, I think no one's surprised by this news. In, in fact, it's kind of crazy that there was any expectation it was going to take place given that everything else had been canceled. But, um, I think we all sort of saw this coming, but the, the final, I think this adds just some finality that, yeah, we're not going to see live sports, at least from a collegiate perspective. At Oregon uh, for quite some time, probably into August and September, unless something changes drastically and there are some unexpected things that they decide that they want to, um, that they've canceled, that they want to postpone and play during the summer or something funky like that. We're just not going to see it, and that stinks, and of course, the spring game is the pillar of the spring football calendar. It is, you mentioned the football perspective, but also we're going to talk about it, some major recruiting ramifications. This is one of the biggest recruiting um, events of the calendar year for Oregon, and they've had a ton of success in the past with that. Um, from a football perspective, it really just stinks because, um, you know, I've heard about this inside a couple of times. The, the Portland scrimmage in the spring game have both kind of acted as our I guess kind of measuring points to see where the team is and to see how some of the position battles have played out because you can only learn so much from watching we get about we've been getting about 30 40 minutes of, of uh, practice availability to watch and you can only kind of take so much away from that. but when you see the guys in full pads and they're lining up 11 on 11 and they're they're doing a full scrimmage uh, like you see in Portland, uh, which was obviously canceled already and then in the spring game, which was just canceled this weekend, um, you, you learn a lot, and there are a ton of position battles that feel kind of unfinished and incomplete, and you're going to kind of enter the summer now and, and heading towards fall camp with really not not much clarity. Like I, I have full confidence that Tyler Shuck's probably the top quarterback, but I haven't seen any evidence as to why, really. Um, and there's a ton of these position battles on offense and defense that we're going to be kind of left up for grabs, kind of going like, okay, who's the top tight end going to be? Who's going to be starting at center? Um what about those inside linebacker spots? We didn't get to see Justin Flo or Noah Sewell really do much of anything. We didn't see the other uh you know, really see any of the other newcomers do enough to really get a great feel for it. So um you certainly are at a loss from that. And then obviously the big thing is that you just lose the spectacle of getting thousands and thousands of, of Rabbit Oregon football fans down in Eugene for a big weekend, which is always a celebration because obviously Oregon's never going to lose that spring game. It's, it's a celebratory affair and you lose that. So, I mean, there, there is a ton that you lose from this. No one's surprised that it's taken place. But again, it's just, I think, like an added finality, some closure that, yeah, we're just not going to have sports for a, the foreseeable future. And that stinks. All
0: right. Well, you recently over the weekend kind of, did post some information that we did learn from the four spring practices that we did have. Now, I'll be honest, I went to two of those four, and then I missed the next two because of uh, I was in Vegas for a Pac-12 tournament that just did not happen um, for an Oregon perspective. But over your four practices that you were able to watch, just what were the, I guess, the overwhelming themes that you felt like we did learn?
1: Yeah, I think we felt... Okay, so I, I wrote about this a little bit. I think we obviously still have a lot of question marks um, on both sides of the ball, obviously. Four practices is not enough to make a ton of judgment calls, but I feel pretty good in saying that the offensive line that we know who's going to be at left tackle, obviously at Penn 8, with Penesul, but I feel like the right side of the line was pretty consistent, and I feel pretty comfortable saying that. Malasala a Aulu will be the right guard, and that Stephen Jones will be at right tackle. And those are things that I think we kind of suspected going into spring would be the case, but I think having watched them practice, I feel better about that. Uh, I feel pretty confident in that Devin Williams is going to be a big part of the pass attack. Um, he was honestly probably the most impressive phys- from a physical perspective of any offensive player. I mean, you you watch him out there, and he has all the tools to be a star receiver. Um, Joe Moorhead was asked about. The position that Williams plays, which is, I guess, the ex-receiver in his offense, and he said that that's a position that Chris Godwin, who you're probably familiar with now, if you're an NFL fan, he's one of the kind of up-and-coming star wide receivers. He coached, uh, Moorhead coached Godwin at Penn State, and he said that was the position that Godwin played that was extremely productive in his offense. So I think you could, I mean, like, if we're predicting who's going to be leading the team in some of these receiving stats, I think Devin Williams' name, like, coming into camp, we felt that way, but exiting it, I think I feel even a little bit better about saying that. And then I just think it became even more clear how talented they are in the secondary and that they're going to be creative and trying to find ways to get all these players on the field. And we saw so many different guys play, even in four practices, a variety of positions to kind of cross-train them and get them prepared for, for different schematic things that Andy Alvarez might choose to do this year. I think you're going to see him be able to be even more creative than he was in year one, where we saw them obviously mix and match the front seven. I think this year, the big thing is you're going to see them mix and match um, the back end, too, where you might have five to seven to eight, maybe even defensive backs in the field at once. And, and I think that's a thing that, that'll that be new. And then I guess the other big thing offensively is just that the quarterback's going to run the football, it sounds like. And that's something that we haven't seen in a while. And Moorhead did kind of open up and talk extensively about that. We watched them uh, quarterbacks and running backs work on, uh, you know, the option pitch. We w- w- yeah, the RPO. Work, work, yeah, work on, yeah, some mesh point stuff. So, um, we certainly sure. learned some things, but a lot of things kind of left that we kind of have question marks next to. But I think you could kind of come away going like, okay, we know this offense is probably going to be a little bit more quarterback run centric than it has been in a while. We think Devin Williams is going to be a key part. We kind of have an idea on some of the offensive line stuff and heck, that defense of the secondary should be really, really good. And I think those are the things that I kind of take away from camp going, like I feel pretty confident in, in, in all five of those things that I just talked about.
0: One other thing that we've kind of touched on and you brought it up a couple times. I just want to reiterate it that um, the offense is being installed. Like the, this is, this was a period in which there were going to be 15 practices right? and Oregon was going to get, a ton of time to install a new offense. And yeah, sure, some of the, the tendencies and the, the plays and the terminology could be the same and could be carried over from the previous offensive playbook, which was called by Marcus Arroyo. But Joe Moorhead's putting his own spin on this. He's making his own adjustments. He's, he's tweaking things. He's adding new things. He's cutting things. And all of that was going to be learned. During the, you know, these 15 spring practices, and so now you have a new quarterback, you have four new offensive linemen, you have a new tight end, you have a new wide receiver out of the three that you do start, all having to basically pick all this stuff up without a full 15 practices. They had four that they got in. So they had 11 practices, which, you know, give or take are about two hours, two and a half hours long. And, you know, they, they lost almost an entire day worth of hours of time on the field of implementing this. And also losses the meetings that come with practice and the Absolutely. film reviews that come with practice and going through oh. and learning off the field the mistakes that you made or the things that you did right and how you can improve on those. I, I think that might be the just the overlaying theme for me of – they're installing an entirely new offense and they just lost a huge chunk of of the dates that they, they got to, to in, implement it.
1: No, that's a huge point and a fair point. And you also wonder about, you know, long-term here. What about, you know, actually weight training and, and working out, what can they actually be doing during this period? And you're right. I, I'm curious to see if slash when all this stuff gets sorted out and life kind of returns back to normal, what kind of, Steps does the NCAA take to kind of, um, I guess, w- w- in terms of spring practice, are, are we going to see an extended fall? It, will it be a thing where they start fall camp mid-July now instead of first week of August? Um are we just going to toss away the spring and say whatever? And that could be a thing which really impacts certain programs adversely. I know some programs had already kind of wrapped up more practices. Some hadn't even started spring yet. I mean, it's a, it's kind of a complicated issue, but that is a thing you have to wonder about, and you're right, with Oregon in particular, where they had so much they had to, especially offensively, that they had to implement. Um, and then you start a season with the type of teams Oregon is set to start against, with you know the best FCS team and arguably one of the best FBS teams. Um, that's kind of a tall task, to ask them to kind of repurpose and reimplement this offense and, and kind of hit the ground running when they're down 11 practices like that. So you're right. I think that's a huge thing, and We didn't really again. We didn't really get an opportunity to see these guys really work on it too much. And I think the thing again that you're bummed out on is Oregon has this incredible secondary, and would have been a fantastic challenge for Tyler Shuck and these other quarterbacks and even these receivers to see how they would handle it. And we didn't even get to see those opportunities live at the at the Portland scrimmage or the spring game. And those are two things that I think you always learn a ton about. Uh, your teams when you go through those things and, and missing out on those, th- that really hurts because you lose that live competition, especially against the secondary this good, which probably would have prepared them a little bit better for for what's coming ahead of them.
0: All right, let's take a quick break. On the other end, we're going to discuss the recruiting impact that this is going to have for the Oregon Duck football program. All right, welcome back to the Austin Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Kramer. is with me as always, and we were discussing before the break the impact of the loss of the spring game on the field. Now, off the field, this is also going to be a pretty big deal. I, I do think Oregon is in a unique situation, though, because while it hurts Oregon, and there were certainly going to be some guys that were going to come in that were big-name guys, uh, the most notable I can think of right now is Deontay Thornton, a four-star receiver from uh, the East Coast. He was coming There was a couple guys up in the Pacific Northwest of Washington area, the Seattle area. They were expected to come, including a five-star prospect. Um, We had some possibilities of a couple other five-stars coming into town. And and so right there, you don't have those guys on campus. And we don't know yet if Oregon will be able to get them back on campus because who knows when this happens. Maybe – Maybe this this shelter in place type effect is in place for a couple week, more weeks than we were expecting, and you know normal routine of life doesn't resume until June. And these guys just at some point leading up to that just say, "I'm done. I'm ready to go. I'm going to commit to this school. Uh, I've been here before, and and I'm I'm good to go." Um, so maybe that happens. Maybe it doesn't happen. And and I. So that's out there, and then on top of that, um, I, I think Oregon is a unique positive situation because during the second spring practice right. that we got that that Oregon had, it was on a Saturday, and Oregon had a junior day. They they were. Very lucky to schedule this junior day around the second spring ball practice because they got over, I want to say, 150 recruits on campus, various levels of, of caliber of guy, various class too. But they had over guys on campus, it felt like. And Oregon was one of the few schools before, you know, across the country everything shut down and the universities shut down and recruiting stopped and all of that. Oregon had was one of the few schools to have so many guys on campus. I think that's going to help them because their lasting image maybe for the next couple of months is going to be what they were what they saw on campus at Oregon.
1: Oh, I think that's a great point, Matt, and we already saw that kind of pay off with Ty Thompson who was going to look at other schools and take other visits and didn't and then ended up getting Oregon a verbal commitment with uh, kind of his last year right, like his lasting uh, his you know thought or the most recent thing he saw was Oregon. For the junior day, and you're right. I think that could pay dividends, but in terms of losing out on a spring game, like we said, this is like a marquee event, and this is a huge event for a recruiting perspective. But again, the the, the playing field is pretty even here because not like anyone else is playing a spring game either. So you know, it's hard to predict how this is all going to play out and what the implications are going to be because we don't know. I mean, you're, you're saying life comes back to normal in June? It might not. It might be pushed until right before the football season. And I'm not even going to go about. I'm going to mention what might happen if this thing goes into September and October and what the replicate repercussions could be there. This has to be like the most unpredictable recruiting cycle in a long time because you're going to be losing potentially two to three to four months of, of visits and opportunities to kind of make these impressions on recruits. And it's sort of hard to know. Exactly what that's, how that's going to impact everybody. But I think you're right in terms of like, yeah, Oregon is one of the few schools that did have a huge junior day, um, before this whole thing got took place and then you've seen everything canceled. That, that has to be beneficial. Like that can't hurt that you've had a, you're right, like a, you're, you're the lasting image in these recruits heads is, oh, I was at Oregon for a spring practice. It was super fun. I had a great time. I didn't get to go to too many other schools. Because their events were canceled. I mean, that's, that's an advantage Oregon has, but I do think there is going to be some lasting impact of not having a spring game in your right. I think from like a West Coast perspective, it might not be terrible because kids, you know, seemingly could still get up and down here pretty easily, but maybe it's some of these kids, like you mentioned, a Deontay Thornton from the East Coast, a player who is probably not going to be, it's not going to be quite as easy to get over to the West Coast. That could be something where maybe he doesn't end up visiting Oregon before he makes a decision. Um, and those are the type of recruits that this could really hurt with, I think, on a national level because travel becomes really difficult now. We don't know when, we don't know exactly when recruits will even be able to make it out west. Um, so yeah, this is certainly not advantageous at some level, but I do think, you know, if there is a silver lining, it's, hey, at least they got that junior day where they were able to impress, like you said, almost 200 recruits um, for a couple of days, uh, in March.
0: Now, from a recruiting perspective, long-term, the NCAA announced that they're considering paying, uh, allowing schools to refund, um, purchases that student, prospective student athletes made for unofficial visits or official visits down the road. I think this is a very smart idea, um, it's going to allow all these recruits, to say, that they had booked airfare, had booked hotels, had booked a car rental to come to Eugene for the spring game or to come some other point during spring football or maybe it was a summer trip that was planned out. And the school can now reimburse those, those student athletes, prospective student athletes for those, those flights and basically Ensure that they can happen at another time. Um, That right there is going to be a game changer for a lot of schools, especially a place like Oregon, because Oregon doesn't have – they're not like Southern California or Texas or Ohio State or Alabama or any school in the the state of Florida in which you you throw a rock in any direction and you're going to hit three or four recruits that are four- or five-star caliber guys. You know, the state of Oregon maybe produces one to five guys a year that Oregon's gonna consider offering a scholarship, and so their best po- their best practice of getting guys on camp it, it's getting commitments is getting guys on campus and showing them the program, and then getting them on campus again and again and again for either unofficial or for their one official visit that they're allowed to take, and so. uh, Oregon's going to have to figure out, once this ban is lifted, of a way to get prospects quickly back on campus. And and it's going to be difficult to figure this all out. There's going to be a ton of questions that schools are going to have that aren't going to have the answers to. Um, One thing I know that I feel certain about, though, Eric, is Mario Cristobal and his coaching staff, they have shown a tenacity to recruit at a high level. In his two years here as, as head coach, that's been unmatched by any coaching pro, uh, coaching staff at Oregon before him. And quite honestly, no one else in the Pac 12 is as creative, is as aggressive and is as consistent as Mario Cristobal and his staff have been to recruit that once things do go back to normal, I have no doubt in my mind that Oregon will pick up and continue to recruit at a high, high level.
1: Yeah, they're going to have to get creative, but if there's one thing they've shown that they're capable of doing, it's it's getting creative and finding new ways to, you know, draw recruits out here. So you're right. I think you have to have a lot of confidence that, you know, when all of this stuff gets figured out, and again, that's, there's a ton of uncertainty about a timeline for for when things go back to normal right now, but When that does happen, that there are going to be contingency plans in place, that they're going to obviously continue to grind and and, and build these relationships as best as they can um, with these recruits and their families. And and you're right, when things do come back to normal, whenever that is, that there are going to be things in place that allow them to continue to have success. And I think out West, you have to feel really good that they've, they've got up to a quick start. They have six verbal commitments um, you know, all of them are basically West Coast guys. It kind of depends on how you want to classify Seven McGee. He's moved coast to coast a couple of times. But, you know, I think that gives you some, some, some ground to stand upon is that you've, you've got some of these top tier guys in the West Coast. They're already verbal commitments. They can keep each other motivated. They can continue to work on other recruits. I mean, this is a time where, where I think that is beneficial. So I think the fact that Oregon did get a head start a little bit and already has six verbal equipments, most of them being four-star players, I think that has to be something that is super beneficial right now in terms of keeping this class together and then hopefully building upon it. And who knows? Maybe we'll see them actually land a commitment here or there um, during this weird period. It's possible. Um, but it's it certainly again, it's really unpredictable, and it's just a it's just a strange time to kind of know what to expect. But I, I agree. I think you have to feel pretty confident based upon recent history that that Cristobal and the staff will continue to grind and put together a really really good class for 2021.
0: All right, now let's turn the page here and let's look back at history a little bit. Um, over the weekend, we did a roundtable, and it was myself, Eric, and our coworker Kevin Wade of the five best athletes that have come through Oregon. And we went with the idea of these are the 10 best athletes from just their time at Oregon. We're not taking into account what they did post. We're not taking into account what they did before they showed up at Oregon. Just their time at Oregon. Um Eric, I'll let you roll through your top five real quick, and then I'll give you mine.
1: All right, yeah, and this is not easy, by the way. and It it was hard to balance some of these accomplishments. It was also hard to do so because there are a couple guys here who I was unfortunately not – I'm not old enough to have seen them uh, compete, actually. So we'll start with one of those guys, and that's Ron Lee. Um, I felt like you had to kind of acknowledge one men's basketball player. Um, I felt like, you know, if you look at his career – He's statistically at the top of a lot of lists. I think he's revered, especially from, you know, I, I, I must say, I, I spoke a little bit with my dad on this one because he's seen a lot more Oregon men's basketball than I have, and he was around when and was watching when when Ron Lee was at Oregon, and he kind of was like, yeah, he's the guy for the men's basketball side. So I'm kind of taking sort of some, some other people's perspectives to heart here, but again, you look at the stats, you look at what he accomplished during his career, he has to be acknowledged so he was my fifth pick my fourth pick here is uh one of two track and field athletes i, I named here edward Cheserek. uh he's won more national championships than any oregon athlete 17 if you include cross-country indoor track and outdoor track um really was just the goat in terms of long distance running for about four straight years at oregon he kind of jumped in started winning national championships and kept on doing it until he graduated um, you know, again, we're not looking at what he's done afterwards because there are certainly Oregon track and field athletes that have won gold medals and national championships and all sorts of things that Cesaric has kind of fallen short on. But in terms of just collegiate performances and accomplishments at Oregon, I think it's hard not to have a top five list without Cesarek. Uh Number three was another track and field athlete, and this was Steve Prefontaine, obviously another athlete I was not alive to see, but another one who, uh, has, I think More so even than Ron Lee, Prefontaine has left a huge legacy based upon uh, what he accomplished at Oregon and the fact that they're still talking about him, the fact that they still have one of the premier international track and field meets named after him, the fact that there were two feature films that came out you know, kind of depicting his life and his career and his exploits. um, I think it's really hard to put together a list without his name on it. So he was my number three. Top two was really hard. Um, I think these these two athletes are probably the top two for, for most people trying to put together one of these lists. Um, it, it, but it's I put Marcus Mariota number two shortly behind Sabrina Unescu. It's honestly kind of like a 1A, 1B sort of thing. I think both of them uh, really separated themselves in terms of these were the best athletes in their sports for a couple of years in college, and obviously neither of them won a national championship. You know, Mariota's last game was a loss in a national championship. Inescu never got to one. I think, obviously, we don't want to spend too much you know, theorizing what would have happened this year, but pretty good chance that she could have won one this year. But uh, I feel like she's accomplished a little bit more than Mariota in terms of just the records she set, um, the National Player of the Year awards, which she's going to have kind of come down. She just won the AP Player of the Year award today, and unanimously one of two players to ever do that. Uh, I think she kind of separated herself from Mariota in terms of having two seasons where she was considered um, the best player in her sport, whereas Mariota just had the one.
0: I was a little bit different with what Eric posted. I had Ashton Eaton, someone he did not have in his top five as my number five. And quite honestly, like I probably should have had him a little bit higher up now that I'm looking it over for like a fifth or sixth time. Um, just because my reasoning is quoted as maybe the best all around athlete to ever sport the green and yellow is track athlete Ashton Eaton. Um, during college, he established himself as not only the best track athlete for, like, the heptathlon, the Decathlon, but also in the world. He set a world record during college. Um, number four for me, like Eric, was number five, was Ron Lee. A guy I never saw play at Oregon, but his impact for the Ducks could stand the test of time. Peyton Pritchard was going to have a very remote outside chance of breaking his all-time scoring record of 2085 points and yet he didn't come close because his season got cut short and it was going to require Pritchard to to score at like 26 or 27 points and play seven or, or six postseason games for that to happen and I just look at his Ronnie Lee scoring record and think we might not see anyone beat that uh, in the way the current landscape of college basketball is, and of the rarity of a four-year player, of a really good four-year player, and he's also a two-time AP All-American, the only player at Oregon to do that for Oregon basketball. Um, number three for me is Steve Prefontaine. I don't think I need to go much into it. Eric already pretty much summarized it. And then, like Eric, I also have Marcus as Marcus Mariota as number two and Sabrina Unescu as number 1 and I'll be honest like before this season played out for for women's basketball I probably had Marcus number 1 but yeah. I I think I think Sabrina has surpassed Marcus in terms of likability, visibility, markability and also just career achievements that she's accomplished at Oregon. I mean she's a two-time AP player of the year and this came out as of this this podcast just before we recorded it but she's what the first unanimous pick for AP All-American since 1995 for for college of women's back for women's college basketball like I, I think her senior year her decision to come back for her senior year has has elevated her her status within Oregon fandom to the number 1 Perch over Marcus Mario. Now, had Marcus come back for his senior year, he probably would be still higher, but he didn't, and Sabrina did.
1: Yeah, no, I think we're. I think that's the one that's interesting, and I'm curious to see what the response is from listeners and those on the website uh, of our choice to go UNESCO over Mariota, which was between the two of us a consensus. Um, I, you know, and again, we don't compare notes, and these are this is what we came up with. Uh, independently, but I, I think there is a really strong case for Sabrina over Marcus, which is crazy to say considering that I think five years ago we would have said there's not going to be an athlete, at least not in five years, especially that's going to surpass uh, what Marcus accomplished during his Oregon career. And I think Sabrina's done it. And I think again, it's, it's a bummer we didn't get to see this NCAA tournament play out because if she would have won a national championship, I think that would have been all but solidified that stance. But you're right in terms of like all of the ind- individual accomplishments, all of the statistical accomplishments. What she meant from a market, yeah, from in terms of her brand. I think her brand is like bigger than just about any Oregon athlete while they were in school that I can ever think of. I mean, she the, the the number of immense superstar athletes in the basketball realm that have kind of come out as supporters and fans and and, and are, uh, ad, you know admirers of what she's accomplished. It's a really long, impressive list of who's who's of the top. And I'm not saying Marcus didn't get that. And I think. We also live in a different time where it's easier to support people on social media maybe than it was when he was there. But um, it, it, I think those things have to go into consideration. And, and I think, you know, I didn't, I say, again, I say, I still think it's, you know, UNESCO's 1A, Mariota's 1B, but I, I really didn't think too long and hard about putting Mariota over Unescu just because what she's accomplished, especially this year, some of those milestones, it's really hard not to get caught up in it and think it's pretty unparalleled what we're witnessing. And I think she deserves to be considered the greatest Oregon athlete ever. And I know there are going to be people that maybe dismiss that. But for me, I, I don't think it's a, one that I really was not, that hung up on.
0: I go back and I mean, you, you mentioned how other athletes were supporting her. I mean, Jordan Bell in the NBA, there's this fashion idea and it's turned into its whole, whole stratosphere of it's you know, subset, you know, subset of NBA talk is the fashion that comes with NBA. And we have a huge fascination now of watching and seeing what players are wearing as they come into the arena and as they show up for post game media i mean that it started in the nba but it's kind of morphed everywhere now and jordan bell has sported the sabrina Unescu jersey and his walk on the red carpet into the arena before a basketball game like kenyon barner is a, one of the best running backs ever at oregon he has Posted up, you know, and and put out photos of him wearing the Sabrina Unesco jersey. Uh, Freddie Jones wore the jersey to men's basketball games this past season. So, like, you can look at this and and see that she is, she has captured the attention of the people on campus, the coaches on campus, the other athletes on campus, and she's done it as well with the the athletes that have come before her and are no longer on campus at Oregon um i think that's a pretty pretty strong sign of where you are as an athlete and so yeah i, I think she's become the most recognizable athlete on on campus at Oregon
1: i, I again i think you you'd have to It'd be hard for me to argue against it at this point. It really would, and uh, I think she's deserving of it, and she's a great ambassador for the sport, and she's a great ambassador for the University of Oregon, and I think you're going to see the future of Oregon women's basketball just the way that the future of Oregon football was. Obviously, there were some down years with Mariota but after Mariota left, but I think you're going to see just the program heightened at a level that is sort of unparalleled because of one Individual athlete success. We already obviously saw it in terms of the recruiting successes with this last recruiting class. They signed five five stars that are expected to be on this year's team. Um, I, I just think she's paved the way and it's not going to be something where her legacy ends by the time she leaves. I think that's going to be a legacy that keeps being really beneficial for Oregon, uh, on the women's basketball team side. Um, for years to come, honestly, she's going to be, you know, I think I fully expect she's going to be a tremendous WNBA player too. And I think those type of things, being able to say that maybe one of the best players in WNBA comes from Oregon, that's going to be another one of those things that down the line you're going to be able to turn to and go, uh, that's an Oregon player. And I think that's going to be beneficial, you know, significantly for a very long time.
0: That's going to do it for us on this episode of the Hudson Audible's podcast. We're still doing these every three days each week. Um, we have a mailbag Wednesday, which will be coming up next. So if you have questions, shoot your your questions to Eric Scopel on Twitter you can also do just a simple hashtag of #auds and audibles which is a growing hashtag for us and something that is pretty cool because we're seeing more and more people do it um, we are doing a Friday show as well we've got a pl- we've got plenty of stuff that will be popping up there um, we're going to deb- debate some more i guess discussion-type topics. So uh, for Eric Scopo and myself, thank you for – Matt Freem, thank you for listening to this Monday edition of the Odds and Audible's podcast, and we will talk to you soon on Wednesday with our mailbag.
1: Adios, amigos.